Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, if you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 8, um, we'll be looking this morning at verses 48 through 59. We'll be finishing John chapter 8 this morning. And this is um, proved to be one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of John so far that we've gone through. John chapter 6 is great. It has all these great passages about Jesus being the bread of life and the hope that's found in him. But John 8 begins with this great proclamation that Jesus says at the beginning, I am the light of the world. This famous statement that Christ is not only the light to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the entire world. This promise back in the book of Isaiah that there would be a light that would shine on the nations. Christ is saying, that's me. (laughs) I am the light of the world. I am the Messiah. This is my identity. This is who I am. But as we've gone through John chapter 8, Jesus is presenting himself to these people not only as the Messiah, but as the I am, the very and eternal God. And if you remember in verse 24 of this passage, he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So we saw the necessity of believing in Christ, not only as Messiah, but as divine, as God himself. And there's been pushback through this whole chapter. It's been this slowly escalating situation and circumstance. Jesus proclaims who He is. They reject who He says He is. He says, this is who I am. They refute that or try to refute that and speak against Him. And He talks about the freedom that He is bringing. Freedom from sin, freedom from slavery. And they just keep going back to their trusted Abrahamic lineage, to their, the fact that they are children of Abraham, that they have the Old Testament, that that's their book. And so they're trusting in earthly things and they're not trusting in Christ. And so we saw last week, Jesus in one of his most direct statements tells them that they're not of the father Abraham, they're not of their father God, but they are of their father the devil that even though they are physically born from Abraham, they have not been born again. They, have, they don't have the new birth. They are not of God, as he said in verse 47. And we'll see that they don't like this. <laughs> this infuriates them. This brings them to literally pick up stones with which to kill Christ by the end of our passage today. They accuse the Christ, the Savior of sinners, of having a demon of being possessed by demonic forces. And even in the midst of all this, even in the midst of his rejection, in the midst of being called demon-possessed and picking up stones to stone him, Christ reveals some of the greatest, most precious truths that we have in the New Testament and some of the most important things that we'll see in the Gospel of John. Christ brings great comfort, promises, and truths even in the midst of great conflict and persecution. And we'll see ultimately today that Christ is not just the plan B of God's redemptive purposes, but He is the plan of all of God's saving purposes, the point of all the Scriptures. So if you want to follow along with me, I'll read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. The Jews then answered him, are, you, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. 
Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews then said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father, Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? But Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your word this morning. We come before it um, with humility, trembling even, um, that you um, have come in the person and work of Christ, and we see in our passage today the great rejection of people, the, the great rejection that these people have of Christ, that they, they, they despise his word, they do not hear the words that he has to speak, they do not see the glory of Christ, and so we come, Lord, trembling fearing that we would somehow miss the great glory of the gospel that you've revealed to us in Christ. And so we pray this morning that you would minister to us by your Spirit, that you would send power to fill us with your Spirit so that we might not miss what is being said in your Word, but that we might come to know Christ, not just in the Gospel of John, but in all the Scriptures, the point and purpose of all of your revelation to us. And we, we ask, Lord, that you, would, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would open the ears of our hearts, that we might see and hear with the eyes of faith this morning, not trusting in earthly things, not trusting in our works or the works of anyone, but Christ. We cannot do this on our own. We need your help this morning to do that. And so we ask and pray that you would do these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So again, a very heavy passage we come to this morning, a very sobering one, and so it's important that we take a careful look at what we have here. So we're going to look at three things this morning. You can follow along on your outline if you want. We're going to look at three things. First, in verses 48 through 51, we're going to see Jesus' promise of eternal life, that even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of name-calling and mockery, Jesus is going to present these people with the promise of eternal life in the gospel. Next, we'll look at this idea of Abraham. What was he looking forward to and what was the object of his faith? We'll see that in verses 52 through 56. And then finally, we'll look at this idea of the pre-existence 
or the eternal divine nature of the Son in verses 57 through 59. So where we left off last week, if you remember, I mean, Jesus called these people of their father the devil. (laughs) I mean, he does not cut any corners. He doesn't pull any punches. He is very forward with the state and nature of these people, that they are against him, that they are acting as their father, who is the father of lies. They're acting just like him. They're seeking to kill Christ. And so he points this out to them, and they do not like this. They don't like it one bit. And so we can see, even in the first verse of our passage, that these religious leaders feel cornered. They feel boxed in. (laughs) That Jesus usually has the strongest words in the Gospels for the religious elite, for those that make themselves up to be more righteous than they are. He's often very pastoral and and, um, and kind to those that are the least of these, the, the, the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors, but for the religious elite that set themselves up as being righteous, as being proud, he is the most forward and direct. And so these religious leaders don't like this. They feel exposed by Christ and his word. And so what do they do in their hardness of heart? They lash out. <laughs> they turn the table. They try to flip the script and they accuse our Lord of being a Samaritan and having a demon. Of being a Samaritan and having a demon. At minimum, this is just insulting, but at its worst, it's blasphemous language. Basically, what they're doing is they're calling Jesus crazy. They're calling him a heretic. The Samaritans were people that come from the line of of Israel, but Partway through Israel's history, they start following other gods. They start worshiping idols. They're what you would call half-breeds, or if you like Harry Potter, uh, mudbloods, right? (laughs) This this idea that they're part, um, they're from Abraham technically, but they started worshiping idols, and so they kind of are viewed as half-breeds. They're not true Jewish descent. They've sort of been mixed, and so this is an insult to Jesus, and then they call him demon-possessed. You have a demon. They're, they're, these are blasphemous words. They're calling him a heretic. They're calling him crazy, but listen to Jesus's response to this. He says, I do not have a demon. I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Look at Jesus' perfect patience with these people. They've just, they've just called him a name. <laughs> you are a Samaritan. And look at his perfect patience towards them. He bears with their insults. He doesn't lash out and call them some other name. He, he isn't focused on honoring himself first and foremost. He's focused on honoring the Father. He doesn't defend his own honor, if you will. He goes to the honor of the Father that this is what you and I typically do. We're a lot like these people. Whenever someone accuses us of something or maybe even points out a sin in our life, what do we typically do? We lash out in pride, in arrogance. We say, that's not me. (laughs) I'm not like that. You know, we puff ourselves up with pride and we think that we are better than we truly are. We're not humble. We don't receive these words humbly. We try to defend our own honor. Even if it's a false honor, we seek to defend it. And we see the opposite with our Lord. He is an example of trusting himself, not to um, his own honor, but to the one who judges justly. 
But we don't only see the patience of our Lord, we see the misunderstanding of the people. That they don't understand what's going on here. They've rejected Christ, they've rejected His Word, and they think Jesus is setting Himself up as this one that should be honored independent of the Father. And that's not what happen, is happening. Jesus is not seeking His own glory, His own honor, independent of the Father. He has come to glorify the Father in His human nature as a perfect example to us and as the Son of Man. And yet, in this rejection, they've totally rejected His Word. They don't want anything to do with what Jesus has to say, His confrontation of their true state, They've rejected his word, and in the midst of this, we see Jesus offer the gospel promise of eternal life for those that keep his word. That he's not lashing out at them. He's offering them hope. He's offering them eternal life, and he does that in the midst of those that deserve judgment, Christ holds forth salvation from judgment. And he says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So is this different than what Jesus has been saying in the Gospel of John? Because before this, Jesus says, if anyone believes, if anyone comes to me, he'll have eternal life. Or what did he say in verse 31? If anyone abides in my word, he is truly my disciples. And so is this keeping of Christ's word sort of an added condition to not only believing, but sort of working and doing works? Is this sort of adding works to faith? Well, no, this is sort of a synecdoche or a a synonym. He's saying, anyone who keeps my word, anyone who abides in my word, anyone who believes in me, John 6 says, anyone who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, kind of interesting language, we talked about that in John 6, they're all talking about the same thing, receiving Christ, believing in Him. Anyone who does this will never see or taste death. Will never see death. Will have eternal life. As he says in John chapter 6 or in John chapter 5 verse 24, he says, the one that believes in me and the one who sent me has passed from death to life. It's already happened for the believer. They've passed, it's, our, it's past tense, they've passed from death to life. And I think this language will never see death. It trips up the people in our text, but I think it can trip, trip us up here. Jesus is not saying that believers in Christ will never experience death. Will never ha- death is a reality, a physical reality for all people, Right? It's, it's going to happen to us no matter what we do. We cannot avoid death. It's a reality for all. But is that what Jesus is talking about? Just mere physical death? No. He is talking about death ultimately. Death eternally. Death spiritually. That for the one who puts their faith in Christ, who keeps His Word, will never see death ultimately. Has passed from death to life. And there's a great catechism question. Catechism question verse, um, uh, question 41 says, for the believer, death is not a punishment for our sins. It's a passage from this life to the next. What does it say in Romans chapter 8 verse 1? There's therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ. So whatever death is for the believer, I think I'm quoting a commentary I heard, whatever death is for the believer, it's not condemnation. It's not unto condemnation. It's unto life. It's not unto death. It's unto eternal life. That this is a great gospel promise, a great promise for God's people that even though when we die, we might be absent from the body, we will be present with the Lord and one day united to our bodies. And yet, in the midst of this gospel truth, do the people receive His Word? Do they fall down on their knees and worship and praise? Do they thank Him for His gospel of grace and mercy? No, we actually see the opposite, that in their darkness, they reject Christ even more. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the object of Abraham's faith. That these religious leaders are now certain that Jesus has a demon. What do they say in verse 52? Now we know that you have a demon. Whatever Jesus said, this is a gospel proclamation. The people are now saying, well, we know you definitely have a demon. I mean, the darkness of their hearts to hear the gospel and respond with, this is demonic. It's, it's unfathomable, and yet that is the fallen state of man. That They're saying, we know you're crazy. We know you're possessed. We know that your message is worthy of rejection. But in a sense, they're still tracking with what Jesus says because they're not ignoring him. They're not walking away. And notice what they say at the end of verse 52 and verse 53. In a sense, they, they see what Jesus is saying. They see that he is setting himself up as the one that gives life. Because where do they go? They go to Abraham and the prophets. They say, Abraham, the great father of our faith, the great father of our people, he died. And you say, whoever keeps your word will not die. Are you greater than Abraham? And they do the same thing with the prophets. They say, the prophets are these great people that spoke for God. They all died. You're saying that you're greater than them. You're saying that you're mightier than Abraham, the father of our faith. And they basically say, who do you think you are? And Jesus, in his response, he claims that he is greater than Abraham. Not only because he is glorified by the Father, knows the Father uniquely, and keeps his word perfectly, but Jesus claims to be greater than Abraham because Jesus is the one that Abraham looked forward to. That in this passage, and in verse 56 specifically, Jesus is claiming to be greater than Abraham because he is the object of Abraham's faith. This is a massive claim of Jesus. He's not just claiming to be another good teacher, another good rabbi. He's claiming to be the one that Abraham looked forward to. Jesus had said, all who keep my word will not taste death. That he is the bestower of eternal life, the giver of salvation to God's people. And the people go to the death of Abraham and the death of the prophets to try to refute what Jesus is saying. They're saying, look, they died. And if you think you are so great, how can these great heroes of the faith, figures in the Old Testament, not know about you? 
That's basically what they're saying. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? But far from this being a refutation of Christ's claim, Abraham is actually a vindication and a proof of the supremacy of Christ. This is worth looking at a little bit further. If you go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, you will find the story of Abraham and his faith. We read some of the passage this morning that God takes Abram at the time, his name was Abram. He, he was a pagan who worshiped idols. God calls him and he's given him many promises, promises of a land, promises of many descendants, a great nation that would come from him. And as we read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And as Zach mentioned this morning, this was a great verse from the Reformation that was used to rediscover and recover the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. That salvation is not by works, but just as Abraham believed, had faith in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith alone. But maybe you haven't thought about this before. What did Abraham believe that made him righteous before God? What did Abraham hope in? What was his faith grounded in? What was the object of his faith? And Genesis 15 verse 6 is not very specific. It just says he believed God. But the question is, believed what? (laughs) What did he believe? He just believed God. All the context says is that you will have many descendants and that in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And oftentimes in our day, this passage gets understood as Abraham was counted righteous, he was justified because he had a general faith in God, and he just believed that he would have a big family and that God would use the Israelite people to do good things for the world. This is often how it's understood, that Abraham just had a generic faith in God, and that's how he was saved. But is that what we find in Scripture? And on the surface, it appears to be that way. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But the truth is, many people have a generic trust in a God, right? Many people believe in a God that provides for them, a God that is good. Mormons believe this. Muslims believe this. Many people believe in a God that providentially cares for them and provides for them, but that is not what saves someone. What saves someone is faith and trust in the person and work of Christ, the Redeemer, the one mediator between God and man. That is the only way sinners can be made right with God. And we see this articulated in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved except the name of Christ. It's Christ alone is how people are made right with God. And so the question that we need to ask is not what was the object of Abraham's faith, but who was the object of Abraham's faith. And the astounding answer that Jesus gives is himself. He says, I am the object of Abraham's faith. 
He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the one on whom they, these people had placed their hope, Abraham was a believer in Christ. He was a believer in the gospel. He looked forward to the day of Christ. He not only rejoiced to see Christ's day, but what does Jesus say? He saw it. He saw it and was glad. He saw it not with his physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. Jesus is saying that Abraham, 1,500 years before Christ's birth and incarnation, looked forward to Christ, rejoiced to see the day of Christ, had faith in Christ in his day, in his person and work, that Abraham is a disciple of Christ, and that he not only heard his word, but kept them, and therefore will not see death ultimately. And this is where normally we start to get strange looks from people. Abraham believed in Christ? Jesus' name is not in the Old Testament. How is that possible? Jesus' name is not used. How can you say that Abraham was a believer in Christ? How can you say Abraham believed the gospel? Well, I didn't say it. Jesus did. <laughs> so hide behind Jesus' words there. But there's a lot of dispute about what did Jesus say. And I've even heard some people say, well, G Abraham looked forward to Christ's day in paradise. When Abraham died, when he entered paradise, when he entered heaven, that's when he saw the day of Christ. That's when he rejoiced. But that is not what the text says. And the context actually forbids that we interpret the text like that. It says that he rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it. That Abraham saw the work of Christ and the person of Christ, not in paradise, but in the form of a promise. Not, this is not heavenly Abraham looking to Christ, but the historical human Abraham looking to Christ. And this is exactly what the rest of the New Testament tells us about how to understand the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles with me, turn to Galatians chapter 3. This is a very important text to understand the words of our Lord here. And, I, and we're taking a little bit of extra time on it, but it's very important that we see this. That in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is seeking to show that justification right standing before God, has always been by faith alone. It's not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. And so he turns to Abraham to prove this, that Abraham was not saved by works, but he was saved by faith alone. And if you look at Galatians 3, verse 6, Paul actually quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then Paul says something very interesting in verse 8. Paul goes on to say that not only did Abraham have a generic faith in God, but he had a gospel good news faith in God. In verse 8 it says, And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
Paul is saying that the gospel, the good news, was preached to Abraham. And how was it preached? That doesn't sound like the gospel you and I are used to hearing, right? Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus raising from the dead. The gospel that was preached to Abraham is this, in your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. Thank you, Eloise. (laughs) That all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That doesn't sound like the gospel to us, but Paul says that was the gospel. What does he mean? That what Jesus is saying in John chapter 8, what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3, what they're telling us is that this is a promise of the gospel. It's a promise of what Christ to do. And we saw in our text this morning, and what he'll say in verse 16, is that this offspring that will come is referring to Christ. Christ is the offspring from Abraham that will bless the nations. What does bless the nations mean? Does it just mean do a bunch of good things for the world? No, Paul tells us in verse 8, it says that he would justify the Gentiles by faith. This is justification of both Jew and Gentile by the one offspring, Jesus Christ. This is a revelation of the gospel to Abraham. This is the hope that Abraham had before Christ was incarnate, before Christ suffered and died. Abraham believed in the gospel. (laughs) Abraham believed in the gospel. That Abraham, in a shadowy way, looked forward to the coming Redeemer, the one mediator between God and man. That the promise of Christ, revealed in the Old Testament types, proved to be salvation for Abraham. That he believed God and he was counted righteous. This is amazing truth. We could spend many weeks talking about this truth alone. But what do the people say to this? Are they struck to the heart? No. They respond to this amazing claim, not with belief and amazement, but with confusion, bewilderment, and mocking. The Jews say to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Basically, what they're saying is, how is this possible? You're claiming to have come before Abraham, who was born 1,500 years ago. How can you say that Abraham looked forward to your day? And this brings us to the third point of our message this morning, the preexistence of the Son. That in verse 57, they're basically saying, you're not even 50 years old yet. How can you claim to know someone and have someone look forward to you who was 1,500 years born before you? And we can see that they don't understand what Jesus is saying. They're not tracking with him. Jesus is only 30-something. How is this possible? But in their blindness... They are focused only on the external, only on what they can see, the man standing before him that looks like he's 30-something, but they have missed the true glory of Christ. They've missed the true glory of Christ, that Jesus is not only the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, the one to whom Abraham looked, he is the eternal, preexistent Son of God. Jesus says to them in verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham 
was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Not just before Abraham was born from his mother, but before Abraham even existed, before he was created in his mother's womb with life that was valuable as an image bearer of God, before Abraham even came to be, I am. Ego eimi, Yahweh. This is a quotation of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, as we've talked about before. I am that I am was the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. This is who he is. I am that I am. One commentator says this, divinity does not have past or future, but always is. That is why Jesus did not say, I was before Abraham, but he said, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham even existed, I am. I am the eternally existing one. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the Son of God. Not created, not derived, I am. And the reason that Abraham could rejoice at the day of Christ was because the Son of God existed before Abraham even was. He is not only Abraham's Redeemer, he is Abraham's Creator. The man standing in front of them, the Son of God, the Word of God, created all things. I am that I am. And lest we think that this is not what Jesus meant by these words, we see in our final verse that the people understood exactly what he was saying. They know that he is claiming equality with God, and so they pick up stones to stone him. This is blasphemous language to them. He's just a man in their eyes. He's not the Son of God. He's not the eternally existing one. And so they want to snuff out this light of the world, and they pick up stones to stone him. And we find Jesus hides himself. His hour had not yet come, and he withdraws out of the temple. So what do we do with this passage? <laughs> what, how do we think about these verses that we see, and how do we think about John chapter 8 as a whole? And I think that as we zoom out and think about all that we've seen, not only in John chapter 8, but in all the scriptures, we see this great glorious gospel truth that Christ is the point of all the scriptures. What does he proclaim at the beginning of John chapter 8? I am the light of the world. I am the one, the revelation of God's salvation, the revelation of God's redemptive plan, both to Jew and to Gentile, I'm the point of everything. And the point of all the scriptures is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, receiving glory through the salvation of his people by the person and work of Christ, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old. And we can say this, that Old Testament saints were saved, just as you and I are, but they were saved by the promise of the Redeemer. They looked forward to Christ, to His day, and rejoiced. We look back to Christ, the one who has come, who has defeated sin, Satan, and death, and that is our hope. But we're looking to the same thing, and that thing is Christ, that there's one message of the whole Bible, and that is salvation by Christ alone. What does Jesus say in John chapter 5? You search the scriptures 
if you could just insert the word Old Testament Scriptures there. You search the Old Testament Scriptures because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that speak about me. (laughs) What does he say in Luke 24? And beginning with the Moses and the prophets, he explained to the disciples all the things concerning himself. From Moses, the first five books of the Bible. From the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. This is the beauty and the great truth of Christ in all the Scriptures. That God has one plan of salvation. It's not through works. It's not through our own efforts and merit. It's not through what family we're born into. It is Christ alone. This is the hope of all people, Old Testament and New Testament. Christ, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. Christ, the offspring of Abraham that would justify the Gentiles by faith. Christ, the fulfillment of the law and the one that bore the curse for sinners like us. That's why we preach Christ and Him crucified. At the beginning of our bulletin, it says, proclaiming Christ in all the Scriptures. That is why we preach Christ, because Paul says this proclamation of Christ is going to be foolishness to the world. It's going to seem insignificant. It's not going to get the growth that people want. It's not going to have the the fervor and the energy that people want. And he says it's foolishness to the world. But Christ crucified to those that are being saved is the true power of God. That's what Christ, that's what Paul says in Corinthians that our soul has been made new by this Redeemer. Our sin has been forgiven. We've been delivered from our slavery to sin, this darkness that we were once in. This is the hope that we have in Christ, just like Abraham had, that we will never taste death ultimately. And so maybe this morning, maybe you know someone that has passed away recently. Maybe you know someone that has died. Or maybe you fear that one you love will die soon. And so this fear of death, this death that seems closer than maybe it ever has before, what's your hope this morning? To hold on to Christ. That for all those that know Him and believe in Him, they will never see death. That even though they might die, they will not taste death ultimately, but their death is a passage from this life to the next. This is the promise of eternal life and joy in the presence of God. And maybe this morning, maybe you don't have someone in your family that's passed away or possibly could in the future, but maybe this morning you're just struggling to believe. Maybe you're just struggling to have faith in Christ, faith in His promises. Maybe your faith feels weak. Maybe it feels insignificant. Maybe you feel quick to doubt the Lord, quick to doubt His ways, discouraged by your circumstances. And what we see in our passage today is that we can behold the beauty of God's one plan of redemption. (laughs) That the infinite, eternal God, in 66 books, over thousands of years, divinely orchestrated everything to point to the person and work of Christ. (laughs) And so how much more can He care for your soul? How much more can He provide comfort for you? That If he is able to do this, he is surely able to care for his people and to provide for his flock. And so our hope this morning, as we said in our catechism class, is not in earthly things. It's in heavenly things. It's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God 
the Father, that he is God, the I am, and because he is God, he is able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to him through Christ. And so we come this morning drawing near to God through the work of Christ by the power of the Spirit. That's our hope this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ, the one promised from Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head, the offspring of Abraham that would bring about justification for both Jew and Gentile, the king from David's line that would have a kingdom that would last forever. This is the one who in the fullness of time was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is our hope this morning, that in the fullness of time, you've sent your son, the I am that I am, the one who can actually save us from our sins, not just prevent us from sinning, not just for a time keep us from doing that which is sinful, but truly and lastingly bring us freedom from our slavery to sin. And so this morning, Lord, may we look to Christ, may we believe in Him, may we keep His Word, knowing that whoever trusts in Him will never see death. And so this morning, we do not need to fear death, we do not need to be afraid, because Christ has conquered sin, Satan, and the grave, and that is where our hope is, in the risen and ascended Lord. Help us to look to Him this morning. We pray that You would help us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.